Ready to rock and roll? I'm ready. Thanks for listening to Worship Local. Worship Local is Frontier Church's podcast where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Des Moines. And in today's podcast, Luke and I focus on our next sermon series, the book of Zephaniah. So we love you, church, and we hope this podcast helps you worship local. Luke Snowden in the house, man. What's up? How are you? I'm doing good, man. Doing good, doing, doing good. Doing well. You, uh, you know, we're finishing up our sermon series right now on the spiritual practices, and that puts us right at the cusp of your micro-sermon series as a church planner. That means a lot. That means you get your own sermon series, but it also means it's your last month at Frontier mm-hmm. Church. How you feeling, bro? Well, uh, I'm excited. You know, I feel like, you know, we put, put in... A lot of time, a lot of work yeah. to get to this point. So it's yeah. exciting to finally like jump out of the nest and spread our wings and see what happens. Jump out and <laughs> see what happens <laughs> and crash and burn. No, but no, fly. no. It's, it's, like a, an eagle. it's a thrilling and exciting thing, but it's also oh, we're jumping out of the nest. There's, yeah. a, there's a weight to that, and uh, yeah. yeah, so so it's it's a a wonderful combination of excitement and a little trepidation. There, I mean, there's like a really clear finish line in Frontier Church's church planting apprenticeship. It's mm-hmm. like you get to preach your own micro sermon series, mm-hmm. but then you're freaking gone, dude. Yeah. Like it's time to go and plant this thing. April two, we're not going to be here. <sighs> Crazy. Man, the snowball finally melts. Yeah. April 2nd. <laughs> did you? Uh, it didn't register right away. <laughs> I did. Uh, I hope he doesn't melt. <laughs> so this is uh, this is something that, in to, to my knowledge, is original to Frontier Church. Like, this isn't a practice that I'm stealing from the church that planted us. I didn't get uh, to preach my own mini-sermon series when I was sent out to plant a church. I, you know, the way that I kind of came up with this idea five, six years ago was honestly asking the question, what do I wish my sending church would have done for me mm. um, in planting me out? And uh, it's it's hard for me to give up the pulpit for, you know, mm. four weeks, but if we trust you to go plant a church and we're going to give money and people to you, then what's four Sundays of preaching, you know? That's, I mean, maybe logical, but nonetheless, probably a little, uh, a little bit of trepidation in you as well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, when, when Powell did his micro sermon series, he did Jude Mm. and that went really well. I mean, of course, um, the atmosphere was totally different. Climate was totally different. We were a younger church. It was in the midst of all the COVID stuff, Mm -hmm. um, but you know, now, you know things are still crazy for us. We bought a building. We're in our first couple months, and mm-hmm. here you are, plant, preaching your own sermon series, dude. So, yeah, it's gonna be gonna be fun. And you landed on Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Why? Let's go. Let's go there. Why did you pick Zephaniah? I'm psyched, by the way. Mm. So uh, that's not a cynical why, but why? Why Zephaniah? Oh, there's there's a bunch of different reasons why Zephaniah. First, I have a genuine a general love of the minor prophets. I had a professor in my undergrad. His name is Kelvin Moore. We could not be more theologically different from one another. 
<laughs> yeah. But we got along so well. And myself and him and um, one of my buddies I went to school with, Michael Kirby, he's a pastor in New Mexico now. Okay. Um, we would just sit in his office and laugh for hours. <laughs> we just had, we had a blast yeah. with him. He was also our Hebrew professor. And uh, we did some independent study in Hebrew with him. And we uh, he was just a great dude. And he... He took. I went through his class on the on the minor prophets, and it was probably one of the, even though the content was maybe not the most compelling class I took, but just going through that with him made it so much fun. And I've always since oh, cool, had man. a love for the minor prophets. And so when thinking about a sermon series, um, I knew I had four weeks. Yep. So I'm not going to do like the whole book of Acts. Oh gosh, can you, you imagine? <laughs> I, or and you know I'm not. I could just pick a section out of a book or do a topical thing, but the, I wanted to do something that yeah, had a clear yeah. beginning and end, that had a nice um, that I could bookend with. And so, right. um, I looked at some books, and I, when I have a short sermon series like this, I tend to always just because of my experience in my undergrad with that professor, I tend to run to the Minor Prophets. Sure. And there's no subject for me that has been more helpful. And good for my soul than the doctrine of God's wrath and hell. Okay, can you, let's dig a little bit deeper because you just said something that I've never heard anybody else say. Yeah. You said there's nothing that's been better or healthier for my soul than the doctrine of God's wrath and hell. Yes. Keep talking. <laughs> Keep talking. The risk of being a little crass. Um, when I look around the world, the idea that God is just love and happy and all beams of sunshine right. doesn't make sense to me. It seems unloving. Yeah. And so for me, it only makes sense that a God that actually loves people would be pissed off when he sees right. injustice. You know, taking care of kids in the hospital with cancer. Um watching the pain that they went through, that they go through, watching them lose their hair, watching their parents weep. Mm. Mm. It makes me angry that a kid has to go through that, and I don't have half the love, and I don't have half the... I don't have a, a, a micron of the righteousness and goodness of God, and it upsets me. And so... If God is not capable of profound anger and wrath at injustice and the mm-hmm. suffering of, of people like children with cancer, it, it doesn't make sense. So when I hear that and I, and I read like we do read in the book of Zephaniah, I see the anger of God so poignantly and pro- profoundly addressed at injustices and matters like this, it, um, it comforts me. It's like, oh, God actually cares about this stuff. Yeah, well He said. cares. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well said. So, like, from a theological standpoint, would it be appropriate to say that when we consider the attributes of God, um, wrath is the appropriate expression of his attribute of goodness? Would you say it like that? Yeah, I mean, as God interacts with people in time, it, yeah, it's his righteousness, his holiness, 
his goodness that is the ground of an appropriate response to human corruption. Yeah. So like, I, I got to ask, and we, you know, we've got great questions in front of us for this podcast about the history of Zephaniah, the authorship of um, Zephaniah, maybe his contemporaries, um, all, all that stuff. I'm excited to, to get around to that, man. But before we jump into that, I've, I've, I've got to ask, like, when you think about expositing this book and preaching this book, there's a lot of wrath in it. Mm. Is it your it, it is is it your plan to stand behind the pulpit and uh, with a red hot face yell at us for four weeks? You know, like <laughs> can you feel my question? Oh, I know the question. I, I have in my mind <laughs> Footloose right now. You've seen the movie Footloose? So good, man. Footloose. It's it's John Lithgow is the pastor in that right. in that movie, and he plays the prototypical angry Christian standing up in front of people yelling and screaming, right? Everybody's joy is an offense to him. Yes, yes. Dancing, which God judges Michael, David's wife, for being upset that she's, he, that that upset at her (laughs) for judging him for dancing because the ark's coming back. Anyway, yeah, so there's there's killjoys in the church, and there's no greater trope in modern American movies than to trot out angry, unhappy pastors who want to kill everybody's joy in life. Right. And not only that, but there's that, but then there's also, there's a kind of self-righteous abuse of power that that, that is in those tropes that people know and people experience in the church of pastors who take a book like the book of Zephaniah, where God is expressing judgment and threats of anger, or even Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, as he issues the woes and the judgments upon yeah. the Pharisees. Right. The, these kinds of texts get used to justify abusive behavior by, by leaders. And yeah. leaders will stand in a pulpit at, and use texts that are aimed at people that are in profound corruption. Right. Israel at this time was participating in child sacrifice in worship to idols. Right. There's no one in Frontier doing that that I'm aware of. And right. if they are, they need to be arrested and properly dealt with. These are not people who are struggling to follow Jesus. No. So this text, while it has relevance to us, should never be heard as if they're in the same position that these people were in. And so the the wrath of God that's being directed here is... pointed at a particular people at a particular time. Just like Jesus' comments in Matthew 23, they're directed at Pharisees at that time. Mm -hmm. They're not directed at the church. And what can happen is is pastors tend to use the word of... Because it's in the Bible, they they think that that's how they need to talk to God's people rather than understanding these are God's sheep and they need to be cared for and they need to be loved with the word. And there's instruction and good things here for us, which is why we're going to look at it for four weeks. Yeah. But it's also not an, it's not, we need to understand our place in it, that we're not, yeah. and, and pastors, unfortunately, I've seen this, where pastors utilize texts like this to get up and whip the sheep over things yeah. that they're not responsible for. Yeah, that's really good, man. Would you say, so we're really passionate about a gospel-centered hermeneutic here at Frontier Church. We talk all the time about being gospel-centered. Would you say that 
this is kind of an area where a, a gospel-centered interpretation is really, really important. Like, it's like like Paul says in, in the book of Acts that he is he has taught the entire counsel of God's word to people. So he's not guilty of their blood. And so as preachers, it's our responsibility to to preach on all the attributes of God and yes. all of the scriptures, but we always touch on all the attributes or all the characteristics or all the content, um, always from a position where we're standing on the gospel. Yes. I think there's two things. To, uh, I agree with that, and I think there's another thing that's there. Cool. Um, so yes, we have to, we, we want to address all the aspects of who God is. So we have a clear understanding of who he is. Yeah. We, you know, we're, we're commanded and I believe it's Romans 13 to not take vengeance on our enemies, but to trust the Lord to bring, to establish justice on our behalf. We're not to seek to establish our own justice for injustices done to us. We're to put that in the hands of God. Well, if you don't know that God is capable of wrath and justice, mm, right? How are you going to be able to do that? Right. You're going to you're going to feel a need to take that responsibility onto yourself or you'll impute it to some other institution like a government or that to do it for you. And and so you need to know the wrath of God so that you can actually trust him for his justice. But the other part to that is we have to know our audience when we're preaching, right? You and I had a discussion about this. I think someone criticized you or Frontier. That doesn't the, sound right. <laughs> in the past, for the way we do the Lord's Supper. Oh yeah, because yeah. It, in the in the um, in especially in Reformed tradition, there's a there's a good reason from First Corinthians 11 to do what pastors call fencing the table. Yes, right. So yeah. people who are walking in unrepentant sin. People who are under the discipline of the church, etc., should uh, that they'll read First uh, Corinthians eleven, where Paul gives the warning to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, and then there's all these other all these other um, consequences that come if we if we fail to do that. And so, typically, what a lot of churches will do is they'll mm-hmm. read that text and warn people before taking the Lord's Supper, which is can be a good and wise thing. Yeah, yeah, in purport, proper proportion. In proper proportion. That's hard to say, proper proportion. It is. But the problem is, is the church that Paul was writing that to were getting drunk and exploiting the poor. Right. In the worship service. And unless we see that kind of explicit sinful behavior, putting those, those kinds of things out in front of the church is pastoral malpractice, right? It's, it, it 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 can be well intended, yeah, but unhelpful to people, and at worst, it can just be abusive. Yeah, Peter Lightheart has a really good section about this that you and I have both read, and uh, okay. you know, on Earth as in Heaven, yes. and, and he talks about how we because that particular text in 1 Corinthians has so much gravitas, mm-hmm. and it does, we have the tendency to make that text color the whole temperament mm-hmm. of communion every time every time we do that. Yes. Um, and then we, we ignore, well, everything else that the Bible has to say about communion, yes. specifically the way that, that the table is always spoken of from front to back in the Bible as a place where God celebrates and dines with his people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just a... Like like we said, it's a matter of uh, proper proportions. Yeah. I think what happens is people, like you said, yeah, exactly like what you're saying is 
people get have this vision because of these texts with all these grave warnings and that it creates a kind of apprehension where they don't freely come to God and enjoy him. And that's because I think what happens is pastors have failed. And I say this as one who's guilty. I know I'm guilty of this too. Where We fail to appropriately apply these texts to the people in front of us. Yes. And pastors, right. and I know this because I've been guilty of this, where you whip the church for the sins of the culture. Oh, that right? is so profound. And rather than rather than preaching to the people in front of you that you know are struggling and doing everything they can to fight the impulses of the culture and you don't see any pro, any obvious expressions of capitulation to that to the cultural influences that are out there but imputing the the sins of the culture onto the church and then whipping them for it, it just doesn't make sense. So when when a and that can happen when reading 1 Corinthians 11 is imputing the sins of the Corinthian church and the dysfunctions that live there onto the church and then warning the church as if they're guilty of the same sins. Right. as the church in Corinth. It just doesn't make any sense to do that. No, no, it it doesn't make any sense, but man is it a power trip? Like it's Oh, it is. I feel like one reason why pastors are so drawn to doing that is because their voice is going to be heard. If they want to mm-hmm. throw around ecclesiastical weight, like that's got a, a lot of weight to it. And like I feel like sometimes it's kind of a mode of passive aggressive preaching. It is. Right? Like passive aggre- being passive aggressive from the pulpit and like mm-hmm. using the pulpit for your own pet sins to be like sometimes there's a, a temptation to not have the face to face conversation with an individual because that's difficult. Yes. And instead, passively aggressively <laughs> do it from, from the pulpit. Yeah, right. And exactly. that can be one example of that. And then people whose consciences are sore because of their struggle with sin. And they feel a profound sense of conviction over their sin because some mm. more. There's a range of people, mm, you know, yeah. in the church. Yeah. What happens is those people with a sore conscience end up not being able to freely and joyfully engage God's presence in the worship service because they're having the sins of others basically imputed to them. Oh God! <laughs> in the in the expressions and threats of judgment. And so then they, uh, they either avoid taking the Lord's Supper or they take it they take it in a manner that is not rooted in their hope in the gospel in their legitimate and sincere fight against sin, which they should be able to do. But, uh, I mean, it's unfortunate. And I don't mean to just sit here and rail against pastors that I find myself superior than. Um, <laughs> that's a danger, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but... The re- I, I just know that a lot of people have they've experienced this to one degree or another. And coming into the book, a book like Zephaniah, people could be appre- apprehensive. And and sincerely, my my concern coming in is I'm thinking about the people in in our church that are particularly um, sensitive, have fresh wounds, yes, um, yeah, who maybe have some. PTSD, either from abuse in their past outside the church or have experienced abuse inside the church. Yeah. And they think when you open up and you read Zephaniah uh, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, this is how it starts. Okay. This is just, this is where he goes. You get the introduction to who's, who's writing this, and then verse 2, 
Here we go. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. <gasps> and it gets no better from there. Right. <laughs> oh, my. It is, it is an absolute... It's absolutely incredible how intense the language is. It sounds more like the lyrics to a Slipknot song than... <laughs> Than it does, <laughs> than it does uh, scripture. It's intense. Yeah. So you know, as you as you think about as a preacher, I love the way you phrased this. So I'm going to say it again. As you think about the temptation, resisting the temptation to to beat up the church for the sins of the culture. Is it kind of your goal to preach and handle Zephaniah as accurately and gently as as possible my am, am i off on that because this whole conversation started with me saying so you just gonna get up there and yell at us or, you know <laughs> um so my goal is i hope to be gentle i hope to be gentle and i i i'm i feel like i'm i can i'll be able to do that but the real the real goal in me and there's a reason why i named this series what i did um, is that we're safe in Jesus. Mm. Um, so mm-hmm. that I, I, my, my goal is to point people to the fact that, um, that in Christ there's safety. Yeah. Though judgment's raining down everywhere. Yeah. We have a, we, you know, we sing rock of ages that we're going to hide in that cleft Right. And cling right. to Jesus, and in there find not only safety but find joy yeah. in there. And um, so that's that's where that's where I'm going throughout this. I love it, man. Let's roll up our sleeves. We've got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> I took way too much time in that. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> I could good. just I could just talk to you about preaching forever. Okay, roll up our sleeves. Who who is Zephaniah? Who is this this jabroni? This cat who wrote this this little book in the Old Testament? Who is behind the mask? So it's interesting. Um, there's three, I think, three Zephaniahs in the Old Testament. Okay. And there are three different people. So this is not any of the other Zephaniahs that you read about in, in the in the rest of the Old Testament. So Zephaniah, we can see in verse one, it kind of gives us his um, a little bit of a genealogy of him. It says the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai. The son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. That should start ringing a bell. Hezekiah was a king in Israel. In, in, his, in Israel. Sorry, I'm struggling with my max stand over here. <laughs> this is out of control. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so okay, have, keep going. He's so son of Zedek, son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah. Okay. Josiah is another Israelite king. Yeah. The son of Ammon, king of Judah. So. Whoever Zephaniah is, he is in the royal family okay. of the nation of Israel right? in the days of Josiah. So that's yeah. Second Kings. So if you want to get a historical reference for when this prophecy from Zephaniah is being yeah. given, you go to Second Kings chapter 22 through uh, 23, 24-ish. You're looking Come. at the the reign of Josiah. Can you give us a little bit of that? So you know, the, yeah. you know, Zephaniah sitting at his desk, receiving a prophecy from the Lord. He's writing it down. What's going on outside of his house at this moment? So, prior to Josiah coming into to reign, Israel has had a string 
of bad kings. Yeah. These kings were unjust. They were um, corrupt. The priesthood is corrupt. They have brought uh, Moloch and Marduk and Baal into the temple. Uh Uh-oh. And they're practicing... um, Into the temple? Into the temple. Like idols of them? Yeah, so like you oh, can worship gosh. Yahweh or you can worship Baal. Oh, gosh. Right? Like you oh, just take my, your pick. Oh, my so it's, goodness. It's this like, is not good. Yeah, so you've got basically... They're um, in the temple. In the temple. Oh, in the most holy place? <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know if they were oh, in the holy wow. place. I know they're in the temple. So what happens, and there's a, the, the big theological word for this is syncretism. So I call it salad bar theology is another way to say it. Yeah, it's a very common. This is a very common practice in America today, uh, among people who call themselves spiritual. I'm going to take a little bit of truth from Christianity, a little bit of truth from Judaism, a little bit of truth from Islam. Uh, I'm going to take a little bit of uh, truth from, you know, Hinduism, whatever other Buddhism. The Buddhism's a big one where people want to yeah, incorporate yeah. that, yeah, and into their into their faith. And so they put all the, and then they basically take the best from each. And put them in, make their own little religion out of it. And that's basically what was happening in Israel at the time. The book of the law, the Torah, was gone. Nobody knew, nobody heard of it. Nobody knew what it was. Yeah. It was lost. The scrolls were lost. They didn't have a printing press and Bibles laying everywhere like we do today. Unbelievable. So there, it was, these were stuffed away somewhere in a back room, collecting dust in the temple. And what happens in the midst of this chaos, I mean, they're literally having orgies in the temple. This is how they worship these gods. They would have orgies and sacrifice their firstborn children to these other gods in the temple where they're worshiping Yahweh. And Yahweh is like, like you guys, well, under Abraham and Moses, calling them to be distinct and God setting himself as separate. This is the whole reason why God doesn't let Abraham sacrifice Isaac in the first place. He's setting himself That's out exactly separate right. yeah. from the god, from the pagan gods that Abraham grew up with. Yes, and he's saying that's the that's the appropriate interpretation yeah. of the story. I do not participate in child sacrifice. You're gonna, I will provide the sacrifice for you, which right. is evidently, which is inevitably pointing forward to Jesus. A lot of people preach that that text mm-hmm. as if God almost did. No, which is exactly the opposite. It of was the saying, actual meaning. I'm different yes. from all the other gods. Right. I'm a I'm a different I'm a different god. You do not do this for me. Anyway, yeah. so this this is a lot of history here, but what's happening in this time is Josiah comes across the book of the law and is like they they run across it in the temple and they're like holy cow. We're doing everything wrong. So Josiah is filled with uh conviction of sin repents and mm-hmm. calls the nation to repent of this and to and to get rid of all the idols to get rid of all the other gods yeah. and to worship Yahweh alone. And so Zephaniah scholars, you know there's debates is does Zephaniah come before they find the book of the law does it come after most scholars there's a pretty good consensus that this probably comes right after the book of the law is found. Okay. is a support to the reforms that Josiah is trying to bring to the nation, yeah, and is probably in the early days of it, okay, where people need to hear God saying, "Yeah, is this you need to repent?" Is this is that your position too? Is, yeah. that, is that where you land? Okay, yeah, that's cool. probably where I land. Yeah. So this is going to be early 600s BC. Okay, early 600s BC. 
And so this is this is uh, this prophecy comes to Zephaniah's, like you said, as kind of a supplement to Josiah's reforms. Yeah. Yep. Would have would have been read aloud to God's people in in order to support the. Reforms. He would have been out there yelling with yeah. the other prophets, you know, cool. Jeremiah, Obadiah, Habakkuk. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So if if you had been the original audience, you wouldn't have sat down to read this scroll. You would have heard it coming through the voice of a prophet mm-hmm. um, in your context. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That dude. That's super. That's so helpful for understanding the tone, you know. Yeah, these aren't these are not authentic followers of God who are who are tripping their way forward and Mm-mm. making mistakes. This is this is some wild stuff. What sort of like literary? How does how does uh, how does Zephaniah write this book? Like, what sort of literary features can we expect come to the forefront? So that's a good question. There's. Uh... Why did I just say that? I wrote that question for you to read. That's <laughs> don't get, don't give it, <laughs> don't show people our hand. <laughs> that was a good question. Com- complimenting myself. What literary um, features are present in this book? <laughs> um, <clears throat> so there's, it's a poem. So what you, when you're reading Zephaniah, other than verse one, you're basically just reading a Hebrew poem, and the it, it's a poem. It's a it's a prophecy in the form of a poem. Yeah, can Hebrew you un- poetry. can you unpack Hebrew poetry a little bit different? It's not a rhyming of syllables; it's a rhyming of ideas. Yes and no. Oh, um, they're they're oh, so, so yes and no. So yes, and you're yes and it, yes. If you're reading it in Hebrew, <laughs> if you're reading it in Hebrew, you will pick up some rhyming. Of, but it's not a primary feature of it. Ri- like so. Oh yeah. There, there is rhyming of sound units. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yes, you will find it. It's not, and usually the rhyming is. It sounds more like alliteration. Okay. Yeah. It sounds more like that. Kind of. It's it's rhyming like Eminem rhymes. Oh my gosh! I can hear the drummer drumming and the trumpet. Someone's trying to summon something. I know something's coming, but I'm running from it. To be standing at the summit and plummet. How come it wasn't what I thought it was? Was it Zephaniah Zep- chapter two? Verse. <laughs> Mom's spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, baby. Yeah. yeah. So no, you're not gonna get because like that style of rapping is gonna be more alliteration yeah. than it is traditional rhyming. Right, right, and so that—that's if you're going to find rhyme scheme in Hebrew poetry, it's going to look more like that. But you're okay. not going to pick it up in English. Yeah, no, no. I mean, there are there are some places like when he goes through, when he goes. So uh, chapter two is uh, chapter two is crazy because God's going to yeah. destroy everything on the earth. That's a, that's kind of the theme, and he goes to nations to the north, then to the I can't remember the order, but it's north east. West and South. And so he picks nations um, that are on the compass around Israel. Yeah. And basically, God's going to destroy them to the north, east, west. And so, and when you get to the south, I think it's the south, the nations that he lists out are in that illiterate, in that alliterated rhyme scheme. Okay. That's... And he puts them in order so okay. that they would sound like an Eminem song. So he. Here's a question. That sounds like really great and even ornamental and yes. beautiful. When we read it as 
poetry, mm-hmm. should should that influence how we read it? I think it should. Yeah. I think it should because um, poetry utilizes uh, different rhetorical devices to make points that might not match up easily with Western presuppositions about how we should read the Bible. So, yeah. So okay. verse one says God's going to utterly destroy everything. Right. And then sprinkled throughout the text, you see a remnant. And then it concludes the last couple of verses aren't judgment and wrath. God has now got a people that he's preserved, saved, and he's now rejoicing over. And so you're like, okay, well, what is it? Is God saving people? Or is he destroying everything? So if you read it with kind of a wooden literalism, there is no hope in Zephaniah if you read it woodenly. And if you read it it literally. Stay right there for just a second. What do you mean by reading the text with wooden literally? Like so, obviously, yeah. you and I we agree. We we both believe mm-hmm. that the biblical text is authoritative, inerrant, and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And what you just said is we shouldn't read this text with a, a wooden literalism. Yes, a little bit more on that. Okay, so when you when you pick up the newspaper, which nobody does anymore, but whatever. We did you back in the day. I'm a boomer. I can say that, right? When you open up your email, when, when you start scrolling through the when news. You, okay, when you scroll through Facebook, okay, and you come across a way to contextualize to the millennials, yes, bro. This this will actually work, actually, because I just uh, it just came to me. So if you're scrolling through Facebook and you come across a post by uh, KCCI about a wreck that happened that morning. You're going to read it and you'll be like, okay, a wreck happened at that time and those people were involved and I'm waiting for more information. And then the next post, the next post is a, is a, um, a meme and the meme has a picture of an Amish man and a child. I just saw this meme this morning and sent it to Theoden because I knew he would like it. Um, or it's a, it's an Amish man and son sitting in a, a horse and buggy carriage and says, the kid says, Dad, I don't want to make butter today. And the dad says, well, son, it's your churn. <laughs> yeah, it's a silly dad joke, right? Whatever, nobody, yeah, yeah. 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 It's the kind of thing that Theoden, if he was an Amish father, would say to his Amish son, and it made me laugh. <laughs> Carl Maxwell, for yes, sure, Carl too. Maxwell. And he Carl would Maxwell nail would that. He, he would, would nail he that. Would so nail it. Okay, now, you're going to read that. You're going to know this didn't really happen. You're going to know this wasn't a historical event. You're going to know that this is in jest. You're mm-hmm. going to impute and presuppose a lot of, a, a lot of things about that that you would never do with a KCCI post. Yeah. You're going to read them totally different. Right. The way you read the book of Matthew describing the historical events of the life of Christ is like the KCCI article. Yeah. In a very different way, you're going to read Zephaniah because it's a different genre of literature. 
Right. And the Bible has different genres of literature. And so you have to read the genre of literature. That's right. With the with the knowledge that that kind of literature functions differently than other kinds of literature. So I'm not going to read it like it's I'm reading just history. Right. I'm reading prophecy, which is a totally different animal than just yeah. n- n- a historical narrative. And so when we're reading it, we have to understand that there are rhetorical devices used in poetry to convey a point that may not be literal. So when right. God says he's going to judge the whole earth and destroy everything, we should understand as we read through the poem and see, oh, he's not actually going to destroy everything. The point is God is angry and he's going to bring a judgment that when you look at it, yeah, you're going to feel yeah. like God, you're going to feel as if God is going to destroy it, is destroying everything. That's how it's going to feel. Yeah, well said, man. Well, well said. Are there yeah. poetry? Are there any literary features that we should be aware of? So when we the, read the big, the big one, I think that there is um, in the big literary th- feature is called hyperbole. Yeah. So, good. so here you're you're seeing hyperbole. Now, beyond that, we're talking. I'm talking historically because we understand the the prophecy of Zephaniah was actually fulfilled in about 586 BC. So God does bring judgment to Israel, and he does bring judgment to the nations at about 586 B.C. So uh, the Babylonians come in, and they destroy Israel. They destroy the temple, and they take the people hostage and exile them in Babylon for 70 years. Right. So, So there is a literal historical fulfillment of the book of Zephaniah, and... For those people experiencing it, it was as if everything and everyone was destroyed. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, there's also the question of, well, there is, is there a greater fulfillment coming um, in, in the last day in God's yeah. judgment? And that right. there are some pastors that would choose to emphasize that over the historical fulfillment. Um, for me, both are relevant, um, but I'm I'm hesitant. I'm always hesitant to be super um, to be super engaged in what exactly it would look like at the, uh, on the last day. There's going to be yeah. judgment, yeah. Um, but I'm not I'm not probably I'm just the way I'm wired and the way I the way I handle preaching and yeah. doing theology. I'm not. That's something I'm not going to spend an extraordinary amount of time on. Yeah. So yeah. it's uh, this is this is a this is a prophecy mm-hmm. that was written in the genre of poetry that features hyperbole, mm-hmm. that was written to a specific audience and had a prophecy that was fulfilled historically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that begs kind of that bigger question, which we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. which is. How exactly does this fit into the rest of the Bible or to the yeah. rest of the, the canon? What's the place of um, – how does this fit into redemptive history as, as a whole? And you're kind of poking at this, but yeah. I'm saying just take the wheel and drive. Yeah, so like I said, the, the, the theme of this book we're going to see is that it's pointing us to Jesus and the gospel. The reality is, is that Israel has now for over a thousand years 
been interacting with God and his law um, and at no point in their history have they ever been able to get it right. Mm. Whether they have the Torah in front of their face or whether it's hidden away in some corrupted temple, Israel has never gotten it right. Right. And God has proven himself to be slow to anger and patient and careful with the people of Israel over all these centuries, but they just can't ever figure it out. Yeah. And at some point, you're just left wondering, how in the world are we ever going to be able to be right with God? Okay. Is there is it possible? And so what Zephaniah forces us to do, where where it comes in in sort of the in the in the arc of redemptive history, is you're at like the climax of the failure of the of the human endeavor to try and appease God through obedience to the law, and you're seeing the weakness of the sacrificial system to actually accomplish anything full and meaningful for establishing and maintaining the relationship with God. And you're seeing the failure of the priesthood, that if you're dealing with human priests, those human priests can become corrupted and bring other gods in. If you're dealing with a a scroll, a scroll can be lost and covered in dust in the back end of a corrupted temple. If you're relying on a king, a king can become corrupted and end up exploiting the people rather than them protecting them and caring for them the way they need to be. Right. And so you're just at this point when you're reading this book, like, are we ever going to be able to just escape God's wrath and enjoy him? Mm. And, that, and the answer to that is we don't need a scroll. We need a person, Jesus. Yeah. We don't need a sacrificial system. We need a sacrifice in Christ. Yeah. We don't need a priest who can become corrupted. We need an incorruptible priest who can who can stand before between us and God. And so in the arc of redemptive history, you're seeing the weakness and the ultimate failure of all of those modes that God was pleased to use to leave us saying, we need something better. We need Jesus. And, and then in Jesus, what's, what we're going to hear every week is that the wrath that we see God threatening is ultimately and fully fulfilled in the wrath that Jesus endured on the cross on our behalf. Right. The expression of God's anger and the expression of God's justice is ultimately poured out on Jesus so that a remnant could be saved. Yeah. And so that he could sing over his people and enjoy, and there'd be real joy. And so we're going toward we're 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 hope my hope is is that each week we'll see more and more clear, clearly how Christ is fulfilled in this book and how it shows us how wonderful and magnificent it is to be in Christ because we don't have to fear this judgment that's coming. He's he's absorbed yeah. it all on the cross. Yeah, beautiful man. Are there any other ways that Zephaniah as a book points us to the person and work of Jesus? I mean, there's a lot of ways. Yeah. There's a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Without uh without showing your hand. Without and... showing my hand. I will just say this. When you read the book of Zephaniah, 
you it feels like Noah and the ark. Mm-hmm. God is going to kill everything. He's going to destroy everything. But if you get in the ark, God's judgment is still going to come, but you're going to be safe. Like Noah. Yeah. And um, that is the image of baptism. That's why that's why First uh, Timothy connects baptism with the experience of Noah. Being plunged into the water in baptism is literally being plunged into God's judgment, and you can only experience death in God's judgment. You drown and you mm. die. But what happens is you get pulled up out of the water, and you survive the experience of being plunged into God's justice. Mm. And that's why being raised up out of the water is so significant is because you are, you are living through the experience of God's judgment. The way Noah and his family heard 40 days and 40 nights of rain in the ark, they were, they were in the hand of God's judgment, but they were safe mm. through it. The same way Moses hid in the cleft of the rock, he was in the tornado of God's presence and was safe. In yeah. the midst of it, and that's the that's the idea here in Zephaniah that God's judgment is coming, but there's a place of safety that if you hide there, not only will you survive it, but mm. there's joy on the other side of it, and there's life, new life on the other side of it, and that's and so yeah, so that's that's where we're going. Gosh, man, it's just an emotionally supercharged book. It's Highs, crazy. lows, mountains. Valleys, weddings, funerals, threats, wrath, singing. Like, what do you think that we should feel as we walk through we might this need, book? We with might you? need some lithium to get us through. <laughs> <laughs> That's the medication used for bipolar. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it, um, it majors on judgment, and it majors on like the holy cow, this is horrible. Um, and yeah, so you get the full range of extreme emotional experiences in God yeah. with this book. And I like to say that what one of the in terms of redemptive history, one of the really helpful things I think is to read Genesis one to three, and then read Zephaniah because Zephaniah is just three chapters. You get six chapters, and in those six yeah. chapters, if you read Genesis one to three and Zephaniah, you get the whole arc of redemptive history. Yeah, you get. From everything from creation, fall, and then in Zephaniah 1, as we're going to hear week one, decreation and yep. justice, and then you get God's judgment on the nations, and then you get God restoring and saving and ushering a remnant, his church, into joyful celebration and life with yeah, him in Christ. Good, man. And so, yeah. So I, I, if people would take my advice, I would start in Genesis 1 on Monday, yeah. Genesis 2 on Tuesday, Genesis 3 on Wednesday, Zephaniah 1 on Thursday, 2 and 3 on thir- on Friday and Saturday. Cool. And do that every week. Do, do it this. four times. Four times. I think I think it would be really helpful. I think it would help you see the whole plan of creation, God's whole redemptive perp- arc of purposes. That's history. awesome, man. That's awesome. As so, as we kind of look to close up this podcast and in our conversation about Zephaniah, is is there anything else that is on your mind? Anything you want to say about how we process this book? Any pastoral note of what you want us to get out of this book? Anything to get off your chest? 
Yeah, I have a heart for people who are wounded. They're on my mind a lot in, mm-hmm. in prepping for this just because I've been in a situation where I've, you know, I, I can't, I'm not comparing myself to anyone here because my experience is pale in comparison to others who've gone through pains in life. But when you've been through a particular painful time, you become quite familiar with the idea that God is is not opposed to allowing you to experience pain <laughs> um, in your life as a Christian. Yeah, right. And when you read a book like this, it's just like, God just wants me to hurt. And that's that can be a hard thing to process because it feels like abuse. It feels like he doesn't care. And it feels like he's just, he's just an angry dad freaking out on his kids. And so uh, what I'm doing with each of, uh, each of my sermons, I'm backing them up with, with a question um, through this each week is, is God an abuser? Is God a tyrant? Is God, corrupt and is God ultimately good? Yeah. And those those questions are looming over each text because I think this book provides us an opportunity to really think through and um, process the pain in our life and the threats of God inflicting pain. Um, it helps, I think it provides us an opportunity to really process some of those things. So and I'm, I'm hoping... I'm hoping to help people think through that. And I don't know how helpful I'll be, but um, that's, that's where I'm going. Cause I know it's been for me personally, that has been a real, a real struggle to think through those things. So. Mm. Yeah. I was reading a philosopher uh, last week who said, there are two types of people who do not regularly feel strong, negative and painful emotions psychopaths and the dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't want to be in either of those, those categories. And mm-hmm. so there's an, an appropriate time and place for an appropriate amount that's measured out of pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what, how we, how would you, you would distinguish it from abuse. Mm. Say that again. There's an appropriate time and place for pain that that's an appropriate and measured out amount that's ultimately for our good. Yes, there's a and the, it's not just it's not just that. One of the thing I have parenting in mind with this a lot that when we think about disciplining children, one of the markers of a one of the things that marks a disciplinary action toward a t- child as either abuse or correction and for that child's good uh, well there's a couple different things first if it's done in if it, if if discipline is done in anger it's usually abusive because humans don't have the capacity to manage anger um, in a manner that is um, anything other than having elements of corruption in it. We don't feel about 
things to the degree that is appropriate. We freak out over spilled milk, right? We yeah. overreact or underreact. Yeah. Um, we um, we don't know the appropriate means of correction, and so we either use things that are overcorrective or undercorrective um, in terms of the means we use. And then we also we also don't know how to f- we d- we don't know how to address it in a manner that actually accomplishes the right kind of good. We just don't we just don't have the wisdom to know the exact right things to do. So there's always an element of corruption in our response, but then also on top of that, we can have motives that are either punitive or restorative. And oftentimes when when especially you know depending upon your experience as a child, when you experience discipline what can happen a lot of times is that discipline comes in a punitive sense like you did this therefore you deserve that and so when it comes to god's administration of discipline which is really what's happening in for the remnant in yeah. the book of zephaniah we we have to understand god is not a parent that's had a rough day is tired frustrated and irritated and overreacting to a disobedient child Right, he knows exactly what's deserved, needed, and necessary, and in a lovingly fatherly way, is employing pain in a manner that perfectly matches the exact scenario in which it's needed for that those people and that time to grow in the way that he's designed for them to flourish. Yeah, that's good, man. I don't know if I could say that again. Yeah, no, that's, but that's... Yeah, I don't think you need to. That's yeah, great. Yeah. We just don't know how to do that. Right. And so when we comp- when we, we, we tend to impute the failures of our parents or abusers onto God when we read texts like this. Mm. And we just... And we have to fight that temptation. That's and good, I hope man. to help people do that. I hope to give people some tools to do yeah. that as we as we go through this. Thanks for picking this book, dude. Um, you've got me on the edge of my seat. <laughs> I'm I <ready>. I'm <laughs> thrilled. You know, Zephaniah. I always look at Zephaniah and I'm like, oh, that's the book where God promises to sing over His people, and I have the tendency to you know ignore the rest of it. So I can't wait to hear it measured out, exegeted, exposited over the course of four weeks. Man, it's going to be great. Have fun. Oh, I'm I, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm I'm thinking it will be a good time. I hope it's helpful for people. Great, thanks, bro. Hey, we love you, church, and we can't walk. We can't wait to walk through the book of Zephaniah with you all.